What do we take from this perplexing book of Ecclesiastes? We're two more weeks. One more after the next 30 minutes in this book. And chapter 11 gives us one of the main points that we've seen again and again throughout this book and something that we really have to wrestle with and have sit firmly in our hearts and minds if we want to live well in a vain world. And that truth is this. Our limitations. We are not God. The center of this chapter, I think, is found in this verse. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Just as you do not know how or when a soul enters into a child in the womb, so you do not know what God is doing. I think that would summarize this book just about perfectly. He is the one, chapter 3, that appoints the times and the seasons of the universe, of human history, and yes, even of your life. And so this is a call at the end of this book, as he is wrapping everything up, for you and me to live with a great amount of humility. That we just don't know certain things, and you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out those things. But you have to come to terms with your own limitations. And so this chapter revolves around our inability to know certain things, and especially our inability to know the future. That you and I do not know what will come next from the hand of the Lord. And while we like to, or we at least do initially, acknowledge that no one really does know the future, we all, we all get that, we don't often live that way. How many of you have plans for the summer. You have them pretty much written in stone. You have plans for this, this next year. You have plans uh, for your children's lives. And they'll probably tell you, that's not my plan. That's not what I want to do with my life. And so we make plans and then we are shocked when they vanish like the vapor that they really are. In other words, we like to play pretend in our minds that we do know the future. That we do know what's going to happen on Monday morning when we go into work. But often the day holds something very different for us. It is strange that in a day, an age in which we have so much, and we have so much material blessing, so much technology at our fingertips, that our age, compared to those of the past, is marked by much higher rates of anxiety, control issues, and depression. Why is that? Well, many people are, are trying to figure that out. But one reason is surely that we are so material, materially blessed that we have time to worry about such things. Prior generations didn't have the time to worry about those things. They were just trying to survive uh, from day to day. Another reason is surely we love all of the blessings that we have and we don't want to lose them. We're scared to live without them. But I fear the heart issue behind all of this is that we have a God complex. That we want to be in control. That deep down, we want to think that we can manipulate not only the present, but what is going to happen in the future. And this is what Ecclesiastes describes as chasing after the wind. Wanting to manipulate and control the future to our own ends. And there is no shortage of false prophets out there today who will tickle your ears and tell you that you can do it that way. 
That you can control yourself, you can control your own identity, you can do whatever you want because basically there is no God, so you can replace Him. So whether that false prophet be Rousseau, Sartre, Freud, Jung, or many other false prophets, it's all the same. We're trying to replace God with ourselves. And you try to exercise that control, and just like last time, the wind slips through your fingers. You can't do it. And deep down, you know you can't do it, and this is why you're so bothered by it. You want to control things, but you know you're not God, and you know that you can't control it. And so we're bothered by our own limitations. We want to know, and we don't want to admit that we're creatures. And sometimes, we even dare to think that if we were in control, we would do better than God has done. I'm sure none of you have ever thought, God, why did you let that happen? And so in our pursuit of controlling this world, we often lose ourselves and we become immobilized. And the heart of the problem is we want control, we want to be God, but we're not. And this is exactly how Satan tempted Eve in the garden. If you take this fruit, you will be more like God than you already are. And so at the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes is the call for you and for me to live as a creature. That is someone who is created, someone who is not independent, but is dependent upon God from moment to moment for his or her existence. To live as a creature before a holy God in a fallen, vain, and wind-filled world under the sun. And in this chapter, chapter 11, we get some advice as to how to, how to do that. How do you live wisely in a world in which you are not in control? And the first thing you must reckon with is the greatness of God in the limits of your knowledge. Those are verses 5 and 6. The wonder of the Christian faith is that it calls us to this, this tension in what we know. First, it calls us to what I've already mentioned, intellectual humility. That we are creatures. We are limited. We are not eternal like God, but we are limited. And we are also sinners. And this means that we often get things wrong. We, there are things we hold too dearly today that a few years ago we probably thought were wrong. And a few years later that we will think are wrong then. We get things wrong because we are sinners and because we are limited. If that never happens to you or has never happened to you, then I'm afraid that you are either perfect or you're a fool. And you're not perfect. Christianity calls us to a deep-seated humility for all truth and all knowledge flows from God Almighty. That is, dependent upon Him, not upon you. But that does not, the other side of the tension, lead us to intellectual despair. Because you can rightly know some things. You can know certain things. This is not a call to some agnosticism where we can't know anything at all or a call to drift into postmodern relativism. That is, it's right for you as an individual. You can hold that as true. This person will hold that as true in contrast. But rather, Christianity holds that because God exists and because you are made like God and because God has spoken and reveals truth, you can rightly know certain things. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain... They empty themselves on the earth. 
And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Illuminating. When the tree falls down, it's going to sit there on the ground for a while, in case you were wondering. But these verses provide that, that counterpoint. You can look at the clouds, you can see that they're heavy with rain, and know that they're going to rain. You can rightly know that. You can know that when a tree falls in the forest, that it indeed has fallen in the forest. You can know that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. And you can know that because God exists, God has spoken, and you are made in God's image. There are things, even as a limited person, even as a sinner, that you can rightly know. The Christian faith is not a call to some fake humility that says we can't know anything. Or to some paralysis that we can't know anything for sure. So Christianity gives us both humility and certainty. Where God has spoken, we are certain. But we are humble knowing that even us can twist God's truth. And so, and so what is primarily on display for us here is our limit of knowledge of the work of God, in particular, the governing of the future. You do not govern the future. Verse 6, In the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So he says, make sure as you're planting your fields that you actually work at this because you don't know if this seed is going to come to fruition or that seed is going to come to fruition. So you should work diligently because you do not know the future. You do not govern what will happen next. I think this is what we really, we really need to, to see here. God is omnipresent. We wish that we were omnipresent. God is outside of time and controls the flow of history. We think that we can do that. We think we know what will happen. But we do not. And so Solomon is a calling us here to stop trusting ourselves and to trust God. Because God is better at shepherding the wind than you will ever be. Wisdom realizes that God is better at being God than you are. Let me say that one more time. God is better at being God than you will ever be. That all of our vain attempts at controlling and manipulating life are like a tiny ant trying to replace a lion on the savanna. It's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way. And Scripture reminds us that you and I should find comfort. Comfort in that truth. You should find comfort, brother and sister in Christ, that you are not in control. For if you were truly in control of everything, your life would be far, far worse. Listen to the words of Christ from Luke chapter 12. You know them well, but listen again. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. 
They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus says that the Lord provides for the birds of the air. He provides for the lilies of the field. And that you are of greater value than those things. How much more will he provide those things for you? So therefore, do not be anxious. Let me put it another way. In response to being anxious, the Lord commands faith. To trust the goodness of the Lord and to trust his provision. And that is good news. So I'll put it to you a different way again. Be free from trying to replace God with yourself. Be free from trying to replace the almighty and infinite God with the weak and finite self. The call to know your limitations, that you cannot control everything, that you cannot know and control the future, that you cannot overcome vanity, that you cannot catch the wind, is an implicit call that you can trust the one who does all of those things. That you need to trust God. So that's truth one. If you're living in a world where you just don't know certain things, the first thing you need to do is trust God. The second thing is that you need to learn to take risks. To take risks. We know that living in a world where everything seems chaotic, where you are not in control, that it can seem dangerous. And one of the responses to living in a world like that could be that you would socially distance yourself from all danger, that you would shelter in place and hunker down, minimize your risks as much as possible, live in fear, and be very, very, very careful. And that would seem very prudent. This world is vanity. This world is chaos. You know what I need to do? I need to remove myself from ever getting hurt. And is that not what we do sometimes? Is that not what we have done for the last two years? In my last uh, doctoral class, my professor, he said, this is what gave me clarity over what happened the last two years. Why were we acting the way that we were acting? And his, his belief was that we were overreacting. And he said this, the generation who has been told safety is a virtue and that we're always told, be careful throughout growing up, came of age. They've been told since their first steps, be careful, be careful, be careful. And so, when faced with a challenge, they fell into what they were told. Risks are bad. And we can be sympathetic to that. I read an article once that, that cut me to the heart as a father. It said to Christian parents, It said, ask yourself how many times you tell your kids to be careful in comparison to everything else you tell them. I'm like, well, I use that phrase a lot with my kids. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Don't do that. You might get hurt. And if we never balance that out, then our kids will never learn to grow up and take risks, which means they will never grow up at all. We could see also, conversely, we could see this lack of control over life as a call to become fatalistic. Nothing I do matters, so maybe I should just sit here and do nothing. God's got everything, so I'm going to just sit here and just let let it all play out. 
I literally had a guy uh, tell me that I was doubting the sovereignty of God in his providence because I was saying maybe we should do something. And I was like, okay, we have this hall of faith in Hebrews where the faith was demonstrated by all these guys stepping out and doing something. Trusting God's sovereignty does not mean just sitting there like a bump on the log and and doing nothing. And that is what Solomon is getting at here. Instead of living in fear, instead of a lifeless fatalism, Solomon says, if you look at this world, you see chaos, you see vanity, you see your own limitations, you should take risks. Look at verses 1-4. through Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or, to, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they will empty themselves on the earth, and if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So Solomon starts this out by saying, what you should do is you should take your bread and you should throw it out uh, upon the waters. Now very clearly, that is a figure of speech. And the question is, what does that figure of speech mean? There's basically two schools of thought on this. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the water? The first school of thought says that's a a euphemism for giving generously to the poor. That you give your bread generously to the poor, and in some way it will be returned to you. The second school of thought says that casting your bread upon the water is a call to invest in trade, which was often done by sea. So you would cast your bread out upon the sea and it would be returned to you. Uh, To me, it doesn't really matter which one it is. Uh, Either way, it's a call to take chances with your possessions, either through generosity or through investment. And since the very next verse is about diversifying your investments, give a portion to seven or eight, don't put all your, ba- or your eggs in one basket, I think it's most likely about uh, trade and not generosity. But the point gets driven home in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. He describes here someone looking at the seasons and what's about to happen. I'm looking at the clouds, I'm observing them, and I'm waiting for exactly the right moment to dip my toe in the water. And if that right moment does not come, I'm not going to do anything. That is the analysis, or paralysis through analysis. There is never a perfect moment in life. And if you wait for it, you will never sow and you will never reap. Sometimes you do need to just jump in and take that risk. Life in a vain world where you can't catch the wind should instruct us to take risks because you don't know what, to, what is going to happen and that's the point. And we have paralyzed an entire generation by making them think risks are not worth it. Right? So technically, um, I'm a millennial. I don't like to admit that. But the joke about, about my peers is that half of, our, half of our 30-year-olds still live in their mom's basement. Why do they do that? Because it's safe. Because they've never been told to take a risk in their entire life. And it's sad. And it's often because their parents are enablers. They've enabled this behavior their entire lives. 
They never take the risk because they were told that risks are to be avoided. The promise in Scripture cuts both ways. Train a child up in the way he should go and he will not depart from it. If you train him to never take risks, he will never take risks. And so we have many men who act like lame sissies and who are limp-wristed and cuddled babies. And many of them are my peers. You need to instruct your children to take risks. Of course, some of those risks you must prevent them from taking. Some of them are pure folly. But as a parent, use your wisdom to guide them in which risks to take and which ones to avoid. And we can take risks as Christians precisely because God is sovereign. Fortune favors the bold. Let me give you an example. I was counseling a young man, and he was, is one of the best Christians I know. And he was, for several years, a head over heels for a young lady. And everyone could see it. Right? But he wouldn't ask her out. Why? Well, she might say no. And that would come with certain fallout in his social circles. And this girl, like him, is one of the best young Christian girls I knew. And so I did what I would do in any similar situation. I sat down with him and I said, you can't get the girl without taking the risk. She is, at this point, either waiting for you to ask her out, or she has no idea that you're interested and won't until you ask her out. Either way, you got to take the risk. Now, talking to lots of young single Christian women, they sympathize with this, that most of the young Christian men are wusses and they won't take the risk. But I said to him, take heart, because he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and the Lord loves giving his people good gifts. And so after a few months of counseling him, he did it. And she said no. (laughs) And I felt like one of Job's terrible advisors. He risked it and he fell flat on his face. But that was not the end. They just got married a month ago. No risk, no reward. And that wedding was such a joyous occasion. Young men, God has hardwired it into you to take risks, especially when pursuing a godly young woman. Now, don't be stupid. Right? You put a bunch of young men together and you get stupidity. <laughs> don't be stupid, but learn to be bold and to take risks. It is good. It is godly. Moms, God has hardwired you to want to protect your little children and to hold them when they fall and to comfort them. But there comes a time when that becomes counterproductive, where you will prevent him from becoming a man. Learn the balance between the two. Dads, model for your sons the kind of bravery, boldness, and wisdom in what it means to take God-honoring risks. That is what it is like to live in this world. If you wait for the perfect moment, Solomon says, you will never do it there will always, always be an excuse. Trust the God who controls the future. Every major gain in the kingdom of Christ was gained because someone took a risk. Someone sailed overseas to an unreached people group. Someone shared the gospel with his neighbor, risking that relationship. I'm not saying Christ's Bible church is a major victory for the kingdom, but this church would not be here without Risk.
a risk taken. Next, Solomon says, in, in addition to taking risks, how else do you live in a world that you just don't know what's going to happen? To put it into modern verbiage, seize the day. Take advantage of what you have today. Don't wait for some idyllic future or live tormented by the past. Seize what God has placed in front of you for life is a gift in a vapor that passes quickly. Look at verses 7-10. through 10. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Again, that's vapor. It passes quickly. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So here is the call that Solomon has returned to again and again in this book. Rejoice. Enjoy your life. Not shallowly but, and not ignorantly, but know that you will have in your life many good days and you will have many dark days. Don't act surprised when you have a bad day. You are not above having bad days. It is a part of living in this world. But each morning when you see the light of the sun, it is a sweet gift from the Lord. And yes, you should rejoice and be glad in the day that the Lord has made. Easy to say, but hard to practice. And so this is a call to walk straight forward. Do not waste your youth or your strength and walk with what is right in front of you within your sight. Do not stress and waste your life by trying to control the future. And do not waste your life by being stuck in the past. Whether it be good memories of the past or terrible memories of the past. You will waste your life by not living in what is right in front of you. When we refuse to live in the present, we increase the vanity of our lives. And just like that, puff, it's gone. And you've accomplished nothing. Hear these words from someone else meditating on the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote this, We tend to cherish our dreams, but rarely act on them. So we continually look to the future for happiness, as if happiness were a destiny. So we live provisional lives, constantly wondering, what if? We hold subconscious guilt that if we enjoy life too much, something must be wrong. We busy ourselves with trying to explain and understand why this or that happened to us. We worry about what God has not yet disclosed while we overlook what he has plainly revealed. We concern ourselves with what we do not have and fail to enjoy what we do have. What we need to emphasize constantly is that life, God's gift to us, is ours here and now. And the paradox is that we must enjoy the present, otherwise life will elude us and we will wonder where it all went. The danger is that we will begin simply to endure our seasons, rather than to celebrate them. And we will let life slip away imperceptibly by the mere passage of time. If you're wondering who wrote those wise words, our very own elder Ardell Kennedy wrote those words about Ecclesiastes. We can be held hostage by our dreams for the future. We can be held hostage by 
our regrets from the past. And it will rob us of all of our joy and we will forget that God rules and that everything we have has come from His hand. And so Solomon says, seize today. It is a gift. Use it and enjoy it. Don't try to control it. Don't try to manipulate it into what you want it to be. But find joy in what God has set before you. He summarizes this by saying, Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. He says there will be things in this life that will vex you, that will cost you sleep, and that if you continually churn them over in your mind again and again will drive you insane. You will have pain in this life, but you are to put it away. Now that's not some call to not deal with issues. You have to deal with the trauma in your life. You have to deal with the evil in your life. But you cannot let that become the center of who you are. You cannot let that become the platform from which you step off of each and every moment. That is what the victimhood mentality of our day tries, tries to get us to do. If you've been wronged, then that becomes the core of who you are and how you interact with everyone. And it is ripping society apart. You can't do that. Solomon says, put those away. Do not dwell on them. Do not make them primary in your life. Yes, deal with them, but then move on and seize the day that the Lord has placed before you. And then remember, finally, remember that the Lord judges everything. One final thing for living in this crazy mixed up world. Second half of verse 9. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. The call to seize the day and to take risks is not a call to do whatever it is you want to do. It is not a call to live according to your own heart and to follow whatever random idea pops into your head. But you are to remember that every thought and every deed and every action will be judged by the Almighty God. So live your life in the present, accepting it as a gift from God and knowing that God will judge you for how you have used that gift. How then, how then do we take that as, as Christians? Solomon writes this before Christ. How do you and I incorporate that as members of the new covenant? I think Jesus gives us a couple examples of what it means to take risks. First is his call to discipleship. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus says, this is the picture of what it's like to follow me. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. Like we have this very sanitized view of the cross. We put them up in our sanctuaries. Maybe one day, Lord willing, we'll have a sanctuary and we'll have a cross there. But that would be like saying, pick up your electric chair that you're going to be executed in and bring it along with you. Pick up your lethal injection and bring it with you. He says, you must risk your life for Christ's sake if you are going to find it. We are told in a million different ways today that if you want to truly find your life, you have to seek yourself. Jesus says the gospel is, don't seek yourself, then you will find your life. 
put it another way, the Christian faith is risky. You have to count the cost of following Christ. There is no way to follow Him that is safe. The paradox of the Christian faith is that it comes to us freely by grace, but it costs you everything. It changes everything. You cannot, you cannot be a safe Christian. There are dragons on the loose. They want to devour you. They hate your Savior. And they need to be killed. And it's our job to do that. Following Christ cannot be half done. You must throw your entire life upon Him and He must become all that you have. In another parable, Jesus says that His kingdom is like a pearl of great value. That this man finds it buried in the field and he buries it in the field again and he goes and he sells everything that he has. That's a big risk. He sells everything that he has so that he can have that field and that pearl. It is like risking your entire life, something that you will lose for what you can only get through Christ. Eternal life and a perfect eternal kingdom. And so the book of Ecclesiastes encourages us to take that risk. Pick up your cross, give away your life in pursuit of Christ and Christ alone. Take bold risks for Him and for His kingdom. Seize the day and live confidently that Christ reigns and He is worth it and He is at the center of all that you have. That is what it means to seize the day. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that you rule over everything. And that in your wisdom and in your mercy, you have given us Christ. And that you have called us to lay down everything to follow him. Lord, may you help us to do that day by day. To live as those who know that we do not know everything. To live as those who know that we do not control everything. But to live as those who know that we know the one who does. And that that might give us a boldness knowing that Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. It's in his name we pray. Amen.